You are listening to Behind the Trials, an interview with Andrew Nunn, part two of two. This is an MRC Clinical Trials Unit production. And so given given that um, TB research and development was promising earlier on and then there was a gap in time, what do you think holds for TB research um, for the next for the future, basically? Well, it's good to see there is an impetus at the present time uh, to actually develop new drugs, or rather particularly to d- develop new regimens, which is combinations of drugs. I think the concern would be if, in fact, uh, it reached a point where perhaps there were three or four drugs came forward and, and then everybody stepped back and sort of said, well, we've got new drugs, we now... We've done, we've done the job. If you look compared to HIV, how many drugs are available for HIV, which had no drugs until the 1980s, and now has got 25, 30, whatever it is, drugs. I don't know how many it is, but a lot more drugs. It has more effective drugs than TB does. And in fact, there is still research going on to produce new drugs. Um, I think one worry would be was if we had shall we say, just three or four new drugs that came through. And then we just depended upon those because we could just be going back again to where we were before eventually because as inevitably, almost inevitably, what will happen, resistance will start to develop to some of those drugs. Uh, and if unless they're given in a way which in fact uh, is very successful in preventing resistance, and that's not easy, particularly when you're having to give patients drugs for any length of time and they don't always take all the drugs that they should take, Uh, then in fact we could find ourselves just in a similar situation in 10, 20 years, 30 years time, to which we have been in the past and sort of really desperate for new drugs but haven't got them. Yeah, and that's interesting. So do you think we should be treating, um, say, drug-resistant TB and drug-sensitive TB differently um, as opposed to having just one treatment for all TB patients? That's a very interesting question, actually. I mean, because supposing today we had four new... And we're close to doing this. We're getting there to having four highly effective drugs, which, in fact, are new drugs, and therefore there should be no resistance to any of them at this stage, point in time then one major advantage would be to the doctor, particularly a doctor in a developing country setting, they wouldn't have to know what the drug sensitivity patterns were because it wouldn't matter if the patient was resistant to rifampicin or isoniazid or any other drug because they here were new drugs that could be given to everybody. So that would simplify treatment considerably. The disadvantage would actually be inevitably that there would be the possibility that in fact eventually those drugs would start to develop resistance as time went on. Now the other thing is it should be said that uh, when you're treating certain forms of TB you probably, when you're those that in fact are more difficult to try treat, you, you're able to take perhaps slightly more risky approach in terms of recognising that uh, Yes, the patient is at risk of even possibly dying, as is the case with XDRTB from their TB. And therefore, in fact, drugs which have a higher um, likelihood of having side effects, but if they're effective, might have a real role to play in the, for those patients. But they may not be the drugs you want to give to patients who, in fact, have simple, straightforward drug-sensitive disease. Um, and 
it it may be and it may well be that uh, people will not want to just have one treatment to, to give to everybody i'm sure there'll be a, a division of opinion on this as there certainly seems to be a division of opinion between researchers about what is the right way forward yeah sure i guess this this probably begs a question about if other, i mean are there any drugs that are no longer available at the moment and whether they should be come back, whether they should come back to the market and and be part of treatment regimens. Um, good question. I mean, the, basically, the, one of the biggest problems is they've been historically, uh, over the course of the seventy years or so since we had had um, streptomycin come along, we the total number of TB drugs of any effect has never been that num that great. There was one drug which, in fact. Not a mainline TB drug, but was in fact a drug which in fact did have good activity against TB, which in fact has was lost, as it were, to the uh, to the TB market um, a few years ago, and that was gatifloxacin. Gatifloxacin was one of the drugs which was was used uh, in the Bangladesh study, and in fact that's the only difference between the regimen that was used in Bangladesh and the one that we used in the stream trial was that we were not able to use gatifloxacin. And this was a consequence of a study, an epidemiological study in the US, which actually identified that in fact older patients receiving gatifloxacin for, for um, just as an antibiotic for a bacterial infection, a number of them had developed um, diabetes, type 2 diabetes. And so the drug was actually re removed from the market and there, were no, there is very little if any gatifloxacin made anywhere at the present time. Now it's arguable as to whether in fact that was the right decision, whether in fact that would have been appropriate to actually remove it from the possibility for TB because uh, the alternatives, all, all drugs have their adverse effects and moxifloxacin, which was the drug which we used as an alternative, gives rise to problems with QT prolongation uh, and heart problems. and which are probably more extensive uh, and more prevalent than, in fact, the problem with the diabetes that was occurring in that population in, in North America. So it would be good, perhaps, if there was a way, perhaps, that gatifloxacin could be re-evaluated and brought back. Having said that, if there are other new drugs which are coming along at the present time which might replace, which will, will fill the gap, then, then maybe that's something which should no longer be pursued. So I want you to imagine that you're in a world of unlimited resources and you had everything at your disposal. What treatment regimens would you want to test in a clinical trial today? Well, historically, TB did very well in terms of actually getting a, good, a very good evidence base for drug-sensitive disease. That has slipped, not been as good perhaps in more recent years, uh, but the real um, gap was actually in treating drug-resistant disease. Um, and because STREAM was the very first randomized trial to really address the question as to what is the appropriate treatment, particularly what is the appropriate short, shorter treatment to give to patients with MDR-TB, um, we started, as I mentioned earlier, just from that regimen that was given in Bangladesh. Now, that had seven drugs in it. Now, I'm quite sure not all of those drugs are necessarily contributing to the same extent to that regimen. 
So it would be very nice to be done a study where one could unpick really which drugs were really necessary and which ones were really contributing. And that would be a very big study because you'd have to have quite a lot of different arms in, all, in the study to actually yes. look at the effect and be able to determine what drugs are actually contributing and which ones perhaps are not relevant and not, not necessary. Because you, nobody wants to give patients seven drugs if they only need four or five drugs. Uh, and I'm quite sure for most patients, there will be exceptions to that, but for most patients, they don't need seven drugs in order to treat their MDR-TB. So you could run like a large multi-R, multi-stage You could, trial. yes, that's, that's right, you could, yes, that's right. What are the challenges uh, ahead of TB research? I think we're making progress on treatment, uh, for sure. And indeed, more progress has been made in recent years, perhaps on diagnosis, than has been made on treatment in terms of we're now more rapidly able to diagnose patients with TB. Historically, it depended, um, so much of it depended not just on doing a, of a, a microscopy smear and mi using a microscope, but cultures which would take up to two months before you had a, a definitive answer as to a patient was positive or negative. Now, now you can have, with the, with the aid of uh, a gene expert and PCR techniques, you can actually identify somebody not just as having TB, but having drug-resistant TB within a matter of hours, which makes a huge, huge difference. I think one of the really, really big challenges is that it's recognised that about a third of the patients who've got TB are never diagnosed. So there are a lot of people out there in the community who've got TB. Now, the interesting, if you look at the annual reports from WHO, and if you look at the numbers of cases in, the in recent years, they've been hovering around the 10 million mark for a number of years now. It hasn't really dropped dramatically at all. Part of that is that they are finding more cases they didn't find before. This happened in two countries, particularly in India and Indonesia, they found a lot more cases than they realised that they'd actually got before. Uh, but So in that, in that sense, there are undiscovered cases, and, we, and it really is a challenge to actually identify the people who've got TB who are not actually being treated and who, of course, are spreading TB to other people. That will be helped, of course, if we are more effective in our treatment, because if we... If, our, if, we have a, if we attain closer to 100% success in treating in f under field conditions, then patients are, much, are not going to go out and reinfect other people in the community or infect other people in the community. Um, but until that happens, in fact, we, there will be a sort of vicious circle of, of new cases occurring. And there is a stigma attached to TB. Uh, which unfortunately is still there in many places, that people don't like to admit they've got TB, um, and therefore identifying cases is not as easy as it actually might otherwise be. So there are challenges there. Uh, and I guess this begs the question of whether we should hospitalise patients for treatment or not, and whether you have any thoughts on that. Ah, oh, well, you're going back to a very old question now, because... The, the second major landmark after the discovery of streptomycin and the MRC streptomycin trial, which was reported in 1948 in the BMJ, was a study that was done in Madras, as it was then called, Chennai now, at, 
what was the WHO Tuberculosis Research Centre, where, where Wallace Fox went to work, actually, at, uh, to be their first director, which demonstrated that, in fact, patients treated in an ambulatory setting at home had just as good results as the patients, in fact, who were being treated in hospital, and indeed that their contacts were at no greater risk if they were treated at home providing when they were given uh, than the patients, in fact, who were contacts of the patients who were in hospital. And the reason largely being is because once somebody starts treatment and has a, have, is receiving highly effective drugs, their infectiousness drops dramatically. Even within days, their level of infection, infectiousness drops dramatically. We could not possibly put, well, we could, but it would be very hard to put everybody in hospital. And it's just not necessary because it's been demonstrated very clearly in that what was called the home sanatorium comparison in Madras, that patients don't need to be admitted to hospital for their TB unless they've got very extensive disease and, and need particularly careful management. Mm. We know that TB is a global health issue. It's one of the world's leading infectious disease killers. And last week we had a, there was a UN high-level meeting yes. on TB. Um, where this uh, issue was more drawn to the public. And so do you feel that we're doing enough now to ensure that we can eradicate TB in, for the future? Well, purely on a numbers basis, compared to the amount of money that goes into HIV research and has gone into HIV research, TB is a, sort of, is a poor second cousin or whatever it is, you know, poor relation to, in fact, HIV. With more money and, you know, guided research, I'm quite sure the uh, attempts to eliminate TB would be more successful. Uh, we could do it more quickly, put it that way, yes. I heard that you were involved in a study to do with Algerian nomads. And yes, that was interesting. That. If you go back, if we go back to the early days of the, when we developed what we called short course chemotherapy. And of course, many people find that a bit of a misnomer. They think short course should mean perhaps a few weeks at most, mm -hmm. not six months, but short course means six months compared to a longer period of time. Those early studies were all conducted with the patients in hospital for six months to make sure they got all their treatment. That way we knew that if, that, if a treatment regimen failed, it wasn't because of a poor adherence, the patient failing to take treatment, it was actually because the treatment wasn't good enough. Mm -hmm. So the first four or five studies that we did, we had the patients kept in hospital throughout the whole time. Not that it was necessary, because that had been demonstrated many years ago not to be a necessity. Patients could get better out of the hospital just as well as they could in. But then we did this study in Algeria, which, in the, which are basically in the Algerian Sahara, so it was south of the Atlas Mountains, uh, in a number of sites where there were both people who were resident in some of these um, little towns, but also nomads who were moving about. They either moved about with their sheep or they went to places where they picked the dates and things, which in fact, uh, depending on the, on the season of the year. Now, 
in that particular trial, um, we included both patients who were residents, who were sort of fixed in a particular place, and nomads who were moving around. And for the nomads, often what would happen is they would collect their treatment in one place, but a month later they would be somewhere else and have to collect their next lot of treatment from an, a totally different clinic in a different part of the Sahara. And now, the, what was, But what was really fascinating was the result of that study. We might have anticipated that the results amongst the nomads might not have been as good as the results amongst the settled residents because clearly there was no supervision of their treatment by medical staff in between. Uh, and the best supervision they would get would be perhaps from somebody else in the tent saying, you must take your treatment. But for whatever reason, whether it was just that the that they, the nomads themselves were particularly good at taking their treatment or that they were being watched over by the head of the tent, or indeed that the treatment could withstand missing a certain amount of, of the drugs, but those patients did remarkably well. In fact, the nomads did just as well as the settled residents. So that was, that was an important study, and, a, and it was a very interesting one, of course, visiting the Sahara on those occasions. That, that is quite interesting. I mean, do you have any thoughts as to why um, that, that group of patients, although you, it was suspected that they wouldn't do well, was there any indication, I guess, post hoc, as to what, why, why, why there was promising results there? Um, I don't think we were able to uh, unpick it entirely into knowing quite why. It may have been a combination of factors. I, um, maybe they would maybe they were sufficiently incentivized to take their drugs. Mm. The, the fact is that different populations, there's some evidence that different populations are, are better adhering to treatment than others. Uh, certainly adherence is a major problem, and um, we had seen this in East Africa um, in surveys that we did, that when treatment was being given for 18 months, I remember one survey that we did in Kenya where we found that by 12 months, only 30% of the patients were turning up to collect their treatment. So in fact, you can see what a major problem. That's when they had to be treated for 18 months. Yes. Obviously, reducing treatment to six months means that that's less of a problem, but uh, still, for some patients, that's still a challenge because one of the problems, well, it's a good thing in a way, one of the good things about TB, but it presents a problem as well, is that after you've been taking your drugs for a couple of months, you feel a lot better. Yeah. yeah. And just like somebody taking a course of antibiotics after a few days feels better, usually, and maybe finds it difficult to complete finishing the t seven to ten days of whatever they were meant to take, if you actually multiply that up for patients, and in fact, who are meant to be giving, receiving treatment for six months, you, you can see that somebody who feels better after two months, it's challenging to actually complete their treatment for six months if they don't feel they really need it. Um, and of course, the patient doesn't understand that, but we know the data shows that if you stop treatment too early, then you are likely to relapse. And so over time, the way we run trials have changed dramatically. What are the key changes that you've noticed since beginning your career and I, I guess what you could focus on here is how I guess analyzing data is a lot different oh, absolutely from what it used to be yes that's that's a very good very interesting point because when I joined um, it seems like the dark ages now in 1966 in fact um, 
it would be wrong to say that computers didn't exist, but you didn't have a computer in the in the in the TB unit. There was no computer in the unit. Um, the nearest computer, as it happens, it, when we started, it was actually in the next square. We were based in Tavistock Square, and the University of London was in uh, had a computer in Gordon Square, which was right next door to it. But we had to take our job to to Gordon Square to run it on the computer there, and then wait for the output, or for the output, or to go and collect the output later on. When we moved to a different location we had to actually wait for the van to come round with to collect the job to take it in and then wait for it to come back the next day having actually run so if you made a small error in your program when you were writing a program it could take days to get it sorted out because in fact it was such a slow process the other thing that we did very differently then was that we used um record cards or something like six by four inch cards something like that uh, which recorded all the information about a patient on it. And it was amazing how much you could get on those cards. But the way we analysed the data in the first instance was to be able to, to actually sort the cards into piles according to whether the patient was in a treat one particular group, whether or not they had had a good response or a bad response. Um, and then we were able to... So that was the first basic step of the analysis. Um, and that was a, a, a tedious process. It took time and and we have it's particularly bearing in mind many of these patient studies had 1000 plus patients in so a lot of cards which you actually just had to hand sort in order to do the analysis uh, calculators changed of course over time yes um that we had we had these sort of old-fashioned ones where you almost turned turned the handle on to begin with um subsequently we had a one electronic we did have an electronic calculator called a moldivo which in fact was um well it, it it pretty well filled your desk and all it had on it was f it had um four stores for uh four memories mm -hmm. plus the ability to add multiply divide uh subtract and take square roots or square numbers and so you could actually you could do your analysis of variance and things using that but it, you couldn't program it mm -hmm. you could actually just uh, do things with it and get the numbers out uh, that way around. The big revolution, of course, really was not when we had our own computer, which we did at one point, we had a room where we had our own computers, we didn't have to take them to University of London. But when we had desktop computers came in, and desktop computers came in, in the late 1980s. And so at that point in time, you could actually do things right there in your own office, and you could program whatever you had to do. And that's what made it possible, incidentally, for research to be done in the developing world, which didn't require all the data to be exported to the UK or to some Western country to be analysed, but it could actually be analysed on the spot. It could be data could all be processed there in the African setting or whatever other setting it might be. So there have been enormous changes in that respect. And so that's that's quite interesting because I guess when the computing revolution came in, you were in Uganda at that time. Well, that's what made Uganda possible. In fact, the Ugandan government made it a requirement that unless there was a, a, a very, very good reason, no, the, none of the data should be exported elsewhere to be analysed. And indeed, all the laboratory tests should be done in country, but 
but particularly all the data should be processed. So in, historically in the trials that we did in the 1970s and 80s and so on, we all the CRFs, the case records forms, were actually posted to London and processed there. And we, we got them coming in from abroad all the time. What we were able to do in Uganda was to put them on a database there in Uganda, do all the processing in Uganda, do the analysis in Uganda, everything to do with the study. Uh, and that made an enormous difference, actually. So as, as, as well as being a statistician and clinical trialist, um, being at the forefront of numerous studies over the years, um, I understand that you also have an external role, such as being an independent expert on a number of committees. What, do, what is that kind of work like for you? Um, well, the one, I mean, I, I have been on a, some scientific advisory committees, which is really interesting to, to look at work that's being done by other research groups and help to advise them as to what, what their future work should be and, and, and to, to comment on the, on the quality of the work that has been done. But I've also um, been, and I still am on, a lot of um, data monitoring committees which are overseeing the safety, particularly the safety of, of studies that are other clinical trials being conducted by other research groups, some of them in this country and some of them in, in other, other countries, some in TB, some in other diseases. Um, and the, the role of the Data Monitoring Committee is a very important one actually because it actually has a, a board of independent people, usually a minimum of three, um, it can be bigger, overseeing the safety that's uh, a certain safety parameter, looking at the safety parameters coming out from a study to assess whether or not, in fact, the patients are being looked after properly or whether there are serious risks, which on occasion can mean a study has to be stopped or at the very least interrupted uh, before, to determine, before determining whether in fact it's safe to continue. So it's been very interesting to be on the, in those in that sort of setting and of course that does include the possibility sometimes when you get a, a result which is much even better than perhaps had been expected and sometimes being able to recommend to the investigators that they can stop their study early because they've got a result which is beyond all doubt uh, showing that the new treatment is working well. So no, that's an enjoyable um, uh, role to play. Yeah. And that's not necessarily just in TB, it's, it's in a a wide variety no, of settings. No, that's right. It's, it is in a variety of settings. Yes, that's right. Looking back, which trial or study or aspect of your work did you find the most, I guess, interesting or challenging? Um, and that could be both. <laughs> um, I'll probably give you an answer which I, when I, when this interview comes to an end, I'll think and say, well, maybe I, maybe that wasn't the best one. I could think of another one. I, I do still remember, and I'm, so I'm harking back to what we've been talking about already in part, uh, I suppose there, there are two that stand out. One is in the order of, in the area of TB, when we demonstrated that, that six months treatment actually was really good. It worked really very, very well because nobody had been treating for anything like a shorter period. They'd all been treating for 18 months or more. And of course, that was only the first study we then had to had to repeat it and show that it really was genuine, it really worked. Now that was, that was really ex an exciting outcome, I really enjoyed that study. In the area of HIV, it was the study which we conducted in Uganda which showed in fact that uh, 
basically what how devastating HIV was in respect of if you had a population uh, in, with even a relatively low infection rate, what a substantial proportion of the total deaths in that population would be attributed to HIV. And that was a challenging, that was a challenging study to do, but in fact it was, the result was really, really very important actually. Just reflecting on your career now, would you have done anything differently? Oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, as I mentioned earlier on, in fact, I think I was tremendously privileged to join the TB unit at the time that I did, partly because of the people who were working in it, Wallace Fox and Denny Mitchison in the laboratory unit, which was linked to it. Partly because it was an exciting time for TB uh, because of rifampicin coming along, which revolutionised the treatment of TB. Um, so... I really, enjoy, I really enjoyed doing clinical trials and not least doing them in a developing country setting. Uh, I was pleased to have the opportunity to go to work in Africa, which is on HIV. I can't think of a job that I would really have enjoyed doing more, basically. I, I, um, certainly, I think it was better than the job in the home office, which I, was, I did have. Um, I had successfully applied for prior to hearing about the opportunities for, to working with the MRC. Now, I'm, I really don't have any regrets about that. And so this brings me on to the next question, which has been posed by uh, several members of, of the unit, uh, particularly statisticians. If you could offer them any advice on career development or progression, particularly those who are starting out early in their careers, I think you want to find a job that you really want to enjoy. I mean, I, um, it's interesting, the choice. My, uh, my wife used to say to me at one time, she sort of said, uh, have you thought about joining a pharmaceutical company, for example? Mm. Where, in fact, the rewards in terms of monetary rewards uh, would undoubtedly be greater. But I don't think the rewards in terms of job satisfaction would be anything like as good, really. Um, I'm not saying that it's not possible to have job satisfaction in that setting. I'm sure it is. But um, the, the work of the MRC is, is very particularly, for example, is, is very highly thought of. And I would um, recommend that people looked for a job which they felt was going to, first of all, really satisfy them. I think it's really important that you um, are working in a setting where people are going to be working in a collegiate way, where we're working together. As I said, I think that's less of an issue now than it was in the past, when in fact statisticians were sort of really just called in at the last minute to, to just provide this little bit of information and that or that little bit and then go away until they were needed to do something else. But uh, I think it's really important to discover how the role, your role will be defined within the organisation that you're hoping to work for. I also say it's important to find out, really to get a good understanding of the disease area. Now, I think that will happen to some extent just through the job, if, the, if, the, if people are working together as a team in the right way. But I think it really is worthwhile sort of getting a good understanding of the disease area, because in fact that is that is crucial to be able to, in order to be able to apply your skills appropriately in terms of understanding what are the, what are the pitfalls and the, 
what are the challenges you face when you design a study in, in a particular uh, in a particular framework? That's very helpful because one, one, I think one of the pieces of advice that you've given to me is to read the medical journal that's relevant to the field of study. Absolutely, that's right. No, you, you're, you're, you're right to read. I mean, I, th I find it interesting to look both at uh, a specialist TB journal and to see what other people are writing, what, the, what they're publishing, trials and epidemiological studies that are going on, but also find it helpful to just to look into a general medical journal like The Lancet to understand what trials uh, and studies are being conducted in other disease areas, which may in some instances actually give you a, some ideas in terms of ways of perhaps designing future studies. What's been inspiration and a great driving force for all the work that you've done so far? Well, it's very satisfying to do a job which you know is actually benefiting a lot of people. Um, it'd be completely wrong to say that it's me, but in fact it's being part of a, let's put it this way, being part of a team that is doing something which in fact is helping to find a cure uh, or, and a better, a more rapid cure. As I said, the big step forward was being able to reduce the duration. I think actually being able to get better results in patients with multi-drug resistant disease now which in fact is currently reported around about the 50% mark worldwide annually at the moment, 50% success, uh, to be able to move that up to a level on a par with drug-sensitive disease would be really good. And so it is satisfying to be part of that process. Very, It is very satisfying. And I guess we, we've delved on this a bit already, but... If you if you weren't a, if if you didn't go into this kind of work, what would you have end up doing? And I know that your journey into this kind of field of work it's it's uh, uh, I was on the it was on it was on the premise of someone saying to you, oh, have you thought about medical research? You should go and speak to someone. What what other routes of work would you have got into if, if it wasn't medical research? Well, it could have been as I said, I did have a job which I um, was successful in applying for a job in the Home Office. I don't uh, really like to think I might have been sitting for the last 40, 50 years behind a desk in Whitehall. <laughs> this concludes our interview with Andrew Nunn. Thank you to both Andrew and Siam for taking the time to talk to us. This is an MRC Clinical Trials Unit production.